Shalom and welcome to this week's lecture titled Eunim Bluribus and Bluribus Unum. Subtitle Understanding Our Meaning and Purpose. As always, I'm going to go ahead and post first the notes for those who want to follow along, print up and follow along. Um, please do. And there it is. Okay, so um, this week's class is uh, is an amazing class. Um, it's built upon it's built upon two talks, uh, two Hasidic discourses of the Rebbe, and one talk. Just one of the talks itself was over an hour, and um, it's really interesting. And uh, I'm going to start with the modern day issue, um, what we learn out of this, because as you know, in Chabad, um, anything, anything mystical. Anything that uh, Torah, and especially mystical, has got to be able to bring us to practical service. How to be a better person, a better spouse, a better parent, a better child, a better community per person, a better friend, a better business partner. It's got to make it practical. And we're going to actually see in this class what that is all about. So what is the modern day issue to be dealt with in this lecture? Victor E. Frankel, founder of Logotherapy, is most notable for his book, Man's Search for Meaning. The premise of Logotherapy and of his bestseller is that the primary motivational force and of an individual is to find a meaning in life. Without meaning, the challenges of life become unbearable and the good moments in life become fleetingly meaningless. And, and by the way, uh, he developed his, his uh, therapy, and, and uh, he talks about it in his book. Um, he was a Holocaust survivor. He lost the love of his life in the Holocaust, and then uh, his second purpose and meaning became his book and his uh, logotherapy. He went through a very hard time. Um, he stood up to Freud, a student of Freud, he stood up to Freud, and then the other students of Freud weren't very happy about that. I think I have frozen here, and I don't know why. Oh boy, we start over. Okay, I am not sure. I saw the screen freeze, so uh, I'm going to move forward. I hope everything's uh, okay. But anyway, so we're talking about Victor Franco. Uh, the founder of Logotherapy, who talks about that the most, the primary motivational force of an individual is to find meaning in life. Now, when looking for one's purpose and meaning in life, I would suggest, I would like to suggest to take a holistic approach. What do I mean by that? In which we do not isolate our individual purpose and meaning in life, but rather, we take the holistic approach by first finding what is the meaning and purpose of all existence. In other words, why did God create the universe, the world, the entire human race, all the creations? And then from there, to then go and understand what our individual purpose and meaning is within that greater purpose and meaning for all of existence. Now, what happens is when we do this, we become connected with everyone and everything. And thus, every single situation, every single relationship we have in our life becomes a part of that meaning and purpose. Additionally, we no more are fragmented 
by all the different responsibilities and different relationships that we carry in all the areas of our life. Rather, everything becomes part and parcel of our individual meaning and purpose, which is part and parcel with the holistic purpose and meaning of everyone and everything. So the approach, this, the, the, this lecture, I'm sorry, this lecture will delve into the holistic approach to man's search for meaning, first getting into the mysticism of the meaning of creation, and then getting into the practical application of meaning and purpose within our own individual life. I always share with you where I take this. This uh, lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a mystical discourse of the Rebbe Blessed Memory delivered on the 10th day of the Jewish calendar month of Shabbat, one in 1960, another one in 1980, and also a printed, edited talk of the Rebbe in volume 36 of the Book of Talks of the Rebbe. Okay, and what these all of this do is they explore a specific name of God, which is called Tzvaot, Ashkenazic pronunciation Tzvaot. Okay, let's go ahead and get some introductions here so we can dive into this uh, lecture. So this year, Wednesday, February 5th, 2020, coincides with the Jewish calendar date of the 10th day of the month of Shabbat. Now, this is the day in 1950 that Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, the previous Rebbe, passed away. And starting in 1951, the Rebbe on this very day accepted the mantle of leadership to Chabad Lubavitch, accepted becoming the Rebbe. Now, in the last years of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, the previous Rebbe, instead of delivering the discourse orally, um, due to MS, due to a stroke, the previous Rebbe would actually write the mimer with all the footnotes and then would give it out to be prepared for print, to be printed, and then the previous Rebbe would um, decide on dates on which these the uh, on, wh on which the mimer would be um, uh, distributed, given out. Now, the uh, last of the series, the the previous Rebbe wrote a four part four part series, and it, it constitutes twenty chapters. And the first part of the series, the previous Rebbe wrote that it should be given out on the day, which was Shabbat. It was to be given out for the Shabbat of the 10th day of Shabbat. And that year, that was the day that would become the day of passing of the previous Rebbe. In 1951, on this very day, the Rebbe would then go ahead each year and create his own mimer on one chapter of the previous Rebbe's mimer, which means that in 1951, the Rebbe delivered a mimer on chapter one, in 1952, on chapter two, in 1970, on chapter 20, in 1971, the Rebbe would then start over again and again on chapter one. And that's the way it kept on going. So if you do the calculations, um, the year 2020 would have been the fourth mimer, the Rebbe would have delivered a, a fourth mimer on chapter 10 of the series. So you have 1960, 1980, 2000, 2020. 
What we do have from the Rebbe is the two mimer of 1960 and 1980 that was delivered on this chapter, the 10th chapter of the previous Rebbe's 20-chapter mimer. And therefore, Hasidim around the world are turning and studying, turning to and studying these two mimerim of the Rebbe of blessed memory on this chapter. This lecture is built upon thou, those two mimerim and an additional talk of the Rebbe. Now that we got that clear, I want to share with you, because we're going to be talking about God's name, so I want to share with you a little bit about God's names. So throughout the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, five books of Moses, prophets, and scriptures, we find seven names that God has, and these seven names constitute the seven non-erasable names of God. It's actually forbidden um, to erase these names of God. Uh, and, and uh, I'm sorry. And one, the seventh name, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is Tzivaot. Now, this name was introduced as a name of God by Hannah the prophetess. Hannah was the mother of Samuel the prophet. She herself was a prophetess, one of the seven prophetesses that we had throughout the history of the Jewish people. Now, when Hannah prays for a child, she calls God, and I translate, Lord of hosts, which means Hashem Tzivaot. If you will look upon the affliction of your bondswoman, and she goes on to uh, intercede and pray to God to have a child. Now, in the five books of Moses, in this week's Torah portion, which is the third Torah portion in the book of Exodus, called Bo, we find that the Jewish people are called by this name. And it's when the Jewish people are leaving Egypt, the verse says, it came to pass at the end of 430 years, and it came to pass in that very day that all the legions of the Lord, the Hebrew word in the verse is tzivot Hashem, went out of the land of Egypt. And then again, in a couple of verses later, it says it came to pass, and it says that the Lord took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt with their legions, tzivotam. So here we have a name of God, which is only introduced later, as we're going to soon see, by Hannah the prophetess. It's not in the five books of Moses. The only one are the seven names, which is not in the five books of Moses. And we also find that in the five books of Moses, the Jewish people are called by this name. Now, what is the secret behind this name? And why at the pinnacle of miracles at the Exodus, when the Jews are the birth of the Jewish nation, are we precisely called by this name of God, Tzivot Hashem Tzivotam? Now, let's talk about this name. The name Tzivot comes from the root Tziva. Now, you may know it, obviously, you may know it from what we call the Israeli army. Tzahal stands for Tziva Haganal Israel. Tzava. So the word Tzava actually has three meanings in the Torah. One meaning is a soldier army. Another mean, meaning is a set time. We'll soon see. And the third meaning is beauty, Tzivion. Now, the Jewish people are called Tzivaot 
because they have within them all these three aspects. Let us see. The first aspect is that we are the army of God. Why are we called an army? And the answer is that the world was created through contraction and concealment, which created this world as the world of the seed. It's called Alma de Shikra, the world of the seed. The world to come is called Olam Ha'emet, the world of truth. Now, why is this world called the world of the seed? Because it denies the existence and the sovereignty of God and the godly sparks of holiness from the higher spiritual worlds, according to Kabbalah, fell into our world of deceit. Therefore, the Jewish people, through Torah and mitzvot, studying Torah with our physical minds specifically, and to do mitzvot through physical objects specifically, we were charged to conquer, gather, and elevate the world while transforming the spiritual opaqueness of this world into a transparency and revelation to the light of God. Thus, because we're set out to conquer the darkness and gather and transform, therefore we're called an army of God. Now, what, what does the word beauty mean? Why are the Jewish people called beautiful? According to Kabbalah, the definition of the word beauty is dependent upon, contingent upon, a compilation of colors. A one-color painting drawing, according to Kabbalah, does not fit the description of beautiful. It's specifically when there is a compilation of colors that we call it beautiful. Now, interesting to note that in Kabbalah, we don't just refer to the totality of the picture of many colors to be called beautiful but rather the multiple colors bring out the beauty of each individual color in the painting. The same thing with the Jewish people. The Jewish people are made up of a multitude of colors. In this teaching, we focus on two colors that we talk about with the Jewish people. The Jewish people are made up of Moram the Araisa and Mora the Avdintam. What does that mean? We are called the man, some of us are called the man of Torah, meaning Torah study and Torah knowledge, and others are called man of good deeds. Now, men of Torah, those who study Torah and have Torah knowledge, they are primarily in the study halls, and thus they're not out there necessarily doing good deeds. While the men who are out there doing good deeds don't necessarily have time to study Torah, nor do they necessarily have great Torah knowledge. This is two different colors of the Jewish people, obviously each one dividing into a myriads of levels. Now, these two different colors of the Jewish people, those of Torah study and those of good deeds, they form in their multitude, they form the beauty of the Jewish people. That we're not just one homogenous people where every Jew is exactly the same. That wouldn't be beautiful. But rather because we have a multitude of colors, that brings out the beauty of the Jewish people. And even more so, each color brings out the sharp beauty of the other color. Thus, we are called a beautiful people. And then the third definition, which is a set time, is because of a verse in Job. And the verse in Job says, Is not man on earth for a limited time?
and he used the word Saba. So therefore, Jewish people, as soldiers in the army of multitude colors, we have a set amount of days to accomplish our purpose and meaning. And because of these three aspects, we are called the legions of the Lord, Tzivot Hashem. And yet we still want to know why are we specifically called by this name at that precise moment when the Jewish nation is being born on its way to receive the Torah from Mount Sinai. And now let's start the lecture. So as you know, when I start a lecture, in the beginning I always give you a list of which mystical concepts we need to explore in order to understand what the lecture is all about. So here is the list. There are five mystical concepts. What is a name of God? What is that supposed to mean? What is the name of Tzvaot? What is that specific name, specific name supposed to mean? There's a verse that says, Days have been formed and one of them is His. What does that verse mean? What does it mean when we say about God, no comparison? And what does it mean when we call God by the name Creator? None of the holy names, just simply Bore, Creator. And lastly, Iunam Pluribus and a pluribus unum. And we'll talk about what those Latin phrases mean. And now, let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So, what is a name of God? Let's talk about that. Let us start with understanding what happened when Moses met God for the first time at the burning bush for seven days. They're arguing. God says, go. No, I can't go. I have a speech impediment. Send Aaron. Send the one you always send. And then he says, and the Jewish people will ask me, what is the name of God? What shall I tell them? And God answers him, I will be what I will be. Honestly, I don't know where it came from. I am what I am. The verse is right there. Eye, ashed, eye. I will be what I will be. Now, what kind of answer is that to Moses' question? Moses asks the question, what's God's name? And he says, I will be what I will be. Sounds profound, but did it answer the question? Our sages in the Medrash explain what God said. And they said that God answered Moses, I am called by my actions. And then goes on to say that when I am judging the world in a more action of judgment of creations, then I am called Elohim. When I am compassion on my world, then I am called by the ineffable tetragrammaton. We call it Hashem, the yud heh vav -Hey name. And then it goes on with all the names, and it says concerning the name Tzivaot, and God says, and let me read it to you, it says, when I wage war with the wicked, I am called Tzivaot. In other words, what this means is that God's names refer to God's attributes. What this means is, that in the seven emotion emanations, which is found in the world of oneness, of unity, called Atzilut, these seven emotion emanations each have one name that corresponds to it. And thus we have the seven non-erasable names of God. Now, according to Kabbalah and Hasidus, there are three types of names of God. Three types of names in general, and obviously we're going to apply it to God. There's something called an essence name. 
there's something called a descriptive name and there's something called an action name. Shem Etzem, Shem Toar, Shem Peula. Now, what does that mean? So first I'm going to give you the mystical definition and then I'm going to explain it practically. When we talk about the essence name, we're talking about the light of the attribute. When we're talking about the descriptive name, we're talking about the vessel of the emanation. Now, let's get practical. When we talk about someone being wise, he's a wise person. Now, when we talk about wise, smart, there is the essence name, which refers to the essence power of the soul, the faculty of wisdom. It's the light, the very mere power of wisdom, the light of wisdom. When we talk about he's smart in a descriptive name, we're actually talking about his physical brain and synapses connections of the brain, that they are the perfect vessel for a great magnitude of the light of wisdom. However, both these names talk about the way it exists within the person. None of them are talking about the action of wisdom. So then there is the, the, script, the action name, which we'll soon see, which does not talk about his potency, not from the perspective of the light of his soul, not from the perspective of the physical vessel of the brain and the synapses connections and the crevices, but we're talking about when a person is in the action, in the doing of wisdom. Now, the same is concerning the names of God. When we talk about the essence name and the descriptive name of God, when we talk about those names of the seven names, then we're talking about the way the attributes are found in God per se. What this means in Kabbalah is that we're talking about within the spiritual divine world of Atsilus, the oneness, the world of unity, the world of spirituality. However, that is when we talk about the first six names. The seventh name, which is Tzvaot, which is the focus of our lecture, we are taught that that is not an essence name, nor a descriptive name, that is an action name. Let's explain this. Let's make sense of this. So in Kabbalah, we talk about the first six emotion emanations of God, the attributes, and God is kind, and God is mighty, and God is compassionate. All those exist within God. All those six emotions emanate and give off divinity and light in the world of oneness, in the world of godliness, in the spiritual realm called Atzilut. All but the seventh emotion. The seventh emotion is kingship, which is on one hand exaltedness, on the other hand expression. The job of kingship is to carry the light from the higher world to the lower world. 
And thus we have the quote in Kabbalah that kingship of the world of Atzilut, oneness and unity, becomes the crown to the worlds of separation. Now, just quickly for the tech guys out there who want to know, and the tech women out there, so the three worlds of separation are primarily Bria, world of creation, Yitzira, world of formation, Asiya, world of action. This world of action has its spiritual form, and more importantly, and what our primary focus is, it has its physical form. This physical world that we live in is called Asiya Hagashmi the action world, the physical action world. Now, what happens is that the last of the emanations in the world of unity and divinity, it actually descends to bring life force and sustenance into the lower worlds of separation. And that is what the world Sivaot, the name of God, Sivaot, refers to the way the divinity is coming down, clothing itself and shining into the lower worlds of separation, primarily the world, the physical world. Now, this is what we have when we talk about the, the world, the, the names of God and specifically the names of Tzivaot. This will also explain to us something very interesting. The name Tzivaot is the only one of the seven names that is not found in the five books of Moses and is first introduced in the book of prophets, Samuel's one in the opening chapter. Now, this will also explain something very interesting. In the Talmud, and in my footnotes here, in my notes, you'll have exactly where it's brought down in the Talmud Tractic Shavuot. It says over there that there is an argument about amongst the many sages and Rabbiosi. And the argument is threefold. Number one, is the name Tzavaot holy and non-erasable? Or is it holy but erasable? Or is it not holy at all? Rabbi is of the opinion that it could be erased, and according to some, he's of the opinion that it isn't even holy. And now we're understanding what's going on here. Because the name Tzivaot does not exist in the world of divinity, it's only in the world of separation and creations, therefore there's an opinion that says it could be erased to the point where some say he even says it isn't even a holy name. Now, that we understand this, we'll understand some very interesting things. The, if you remember, I told you the sages give an explanation of why each name, which action God told Moses refers to which name. And concerning the name Tzivaot, what did he say? Do you remember? It says, when I wage war with the wicked, what does wicked mean on a Kabbalistic level? What it means is the world of separation and concealment and darkness and self-centeredness. Thus, it talks about the name as it exists in that world of separation and creation. We also understand now why the Tzivaot is an action name rather than an essence name or descriptive name. 
because it's not a essence or description of the attribute of God unto himself within the spiritual divine world. Rather, this is the name of action in the lower worlds of separation, darkness, and creations. This will also explain the mystical secret behind the Talmudic argument about the holiness and being erasable of the name. Being that it's found in the world of separation, do we consider it even holy? And if we do consider it holy, maybe it could be erasable. Now, we can also understand why this name does not appear in the five books of Moses. The five books of Moses is Atzilut, the world of divinity. It's the direct word of God coming through Moses' voice like a megaphone. It's not the word of Moses. But rather, this word of Tzvaot, this name Tzvaot, is only found in the, book, in the books of prophets. The books of prophets represent the lower worlds. It's the world of separation, creations, prophet, human being. The word of God through the minds of human prophets. Not just like a megaphone, but rather told in visions perceived by the human prophet, given over by the human prophet. Thus, this all makes sense now because there is a very distinct difference between the name Tzvaot and the other six names. Whether it is within God, per se, which means within the godly world of oneness and unity called Atzilut, or whether it's in the world of creations, the separations, the darkness. And being that Tzvaot is in the latter, while the first six are in the higher, the prior, thus there's a very clear distinction between the seventh name and the first six names. Okay, let's move along here. Now let's focus on one specific explanation of the interpretation of the word Tzvaot. We refer to it as set time. I quoted to you the verse in Psalms that says, Days have been formed, and one of them is his. Now, before we go into the mystical interpretation of this verse, I want to quote to you the most classic commentary called Rashi, Rab Shlomo, Rab Shlomo Yitzchaki. He has two comments on this phrase in the verse. However, just a little introduction is necessary before I can, for you to understand the second interpretation. So we have a tradition in the Talmud which tells us from Moses, generation after generation, there are some words in the Torah that are written with one spelling but read with another spelling. Such an example is in our verse. The word his, remember the verse says, days have been formed and one of them is his. The word his in the written tradition is low, Lamed Aleph. A Lamed with an Aleph means no. However, tradition tells us to read it as low with a Vav. Lamed Vav, which means his. Now I'm going to go ahead and quote to you the precise two comments of Rashi to understand the simple definition of this verse in Tehillim before we get mystical about it. Comment number one. All man's deeds and the end of days are revealed before you, capital Y, 
as if they were already formed, although not one of them was in existence, and not one was yet in the world. These are the wonders of God's work and the way of his might, that future events are revealed to him before they come. And so scriptures say in Jeremiah, when I had not yet formed you in the womb, etc. So the first interpretation is that God knows everything that's going to happen on every day before it happens. Let's look at the second comment. Ultimately, many days were destined to be created, but not one of them was yet created. Now, according to the tradition, the way it's written, that's what it means. Lo, this is the explanation, that many days were destined to be created, but not, a, not one of them was yet created. That's the time that we're talking about in this verse. However, according to the reading, as it's read low with a vav, which means his, this is its explanation. Days have been formed. He showed the days that were destined to be created. And for his share, he shows one of them. Now, Rashi brings an argument. What does it mean he chose one of them? One says that it means the Shabbat day. That's his day. And the other explanation says, no, it's really referring to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement for forgiveness. This is the way the simple interpretation of what this verse is saying. One is that God knows before it happens. And the other one, depending on how you read it, if it's low, again, it talks about before the days were created. If it's low with above, it's talking about that amongst the days that God created, he made one his, Shabbat or Yom Kippur, however you choose to look at it. Now let's get mystical. So there is the Aleph and there is the Vav, the written Lamed Aleph and the red Lamed Vav. What does that mean in Kabbalah? Aleph refers to God, the essence of God. God is called Alufo Shel Olam. God is one. Now, the Vav, if you know the, the image of the Hebrew letter Vav, it has a little yud on the top and then it comes down. Kabbalistically, this refers to a descent into the lower realms of separation, coming down. That's what Aleph and Vav means mystically. Now, what does the word days mean mystically? Days refer to the service within the world of separation. Thus, the Zohar, upon the verse in Genesis that talks about God blessed Avram when he was old, it says as follows, And Abraham was old, came with days, and the Lord had blessed Abraham with everything. Now, what the Zohar explains there is that there's two things. Avram was old, and he came with days. What the mystical insight to this is, that there is their overall lifetime meaning, purpose, and service. It really doesn't depend upon whether you did it when you were younger, older, middle age. Throughout your life, this needs to be accomplished. However, the Zohar goes on to say, there's another concept which means ba bayamim, come with your days. Every single day has to have divinity drawn into it through our Torah and mitzvot, good deeds and actions. Thus, the Zohar goes on to say that if there's missing one day, there is missing one garment. Now, 
this concept of of days we are taught in kabbalah that this refers to the service of prayers because in prayer specifically we have the prayer of day of evening and the prayer of morning now if you look into the verse in genesis it says and it was the evening and the morning of one day thus on a mystical level we talk about prayer this doesn't exist by Torah and mitzvot, by Torah study and mitzvot observance, where you have a specific concept which is called the morning service and the evening service. Now, what is prayer all about? Prayer is all about bringing down into this world. Our prayer is for our physical needs, health, children, peace, um, uh, sustenance. It's all about the physical it's bringing God into the physical. And thus, we talk about prayers as the service of day, separation, evening, morning, coming into the physical world, the ultimate world of separation and concealment and contraction and darkness. Now, let's understand what the meaning behind what the Zohar is saying. If you're missing a day, you're missing a garment. In other words, day is not talking about the spiritual essence light it's talking about the garments separation now what that means is that because our soul descends into the world of separation specifically into the world of physical specifically into the physical body thus our torah and mitzvot can be lacking in the sense of self-centered fingerprints all over it now that which is self-centered arrogant and egocentric cannot become part of the spiritual thus we have to wash the vessels thus we have to wash our torah study thus we have to wash our mitzvot observance Therefore, how do we wash the garments, the physical garment and the physical objects, garments, through which we do Torah and mitzvot? It is through prayer. Prayer is the washing process which breaks down the ego and helps us become transparent to God. Now, therefore... We have the prayer is called days because it's the garments, it's the physicality, the garments of the human being, not the soul of the human being, but the garments of the human being that need to be washed. Now, the question is, why is it imperative to draw the oneness of the essence of God into the multiplicity of days? Why? Why does it have to be that way? Thus, we're going to understand the verse is telling us that we have to bring, according to Kabbalah, between the written and the reading is that we have to bring the Aleph, the essence of God, into the Vav, drawing it down into the multiplicity and separation um, of days. Now, to understand this, we need to understand what is the entire meaning and purpose, the holistic meaning and purpose of all of creation. What was God's desire? God has no need. But what was God's desire when God created the universe? 
specifically down to the physical world. Now, the reason why there is all these worlds is because it's all part of an evolution which creates more contractions, more concealments, the light gets weaker, the vessels become more opaque until we have this physical world of absolute darkness to the point where atheism can exist, total rebellion against God, denial of God's existence, egocentric, to the point where Pharaoh says, who is God that I should listen to him? And as we said in the Haftorah, that Pharaoh says, mine is the forest and I made myself. This exists only in this dark world. And all of creation and all of the process of evolution was to get to this physical world. And then the mission and purpose is, through freedom of choice, which makes it precious, what angels do are perfect, but not precious. What we do, because we have a duplicity of hearts, the side of the heart which is one with God, the side of the heart which is always pulling for the egocentric pleasures. Thus, the job is for us human beings, creatures that have a soul of God and a body of darkness, through our Torah study and our mitzvot observance, physically, to go ahead and transform this world of darkness, that it should become the ultimate abode for the essence of God. And thus it's so precious because the fact that there is evil creates for us the potential of freedom of choice, I can choose either way, which makes it precious that I have chosen to use my life and my physical environment for Yiddishkeit, to build a Jewish home, to give the kids Jewish education, to work and serve in the Jewish community, to give charity to the Jewish causes, and the goodness and acts of kindness to all of God's creatures. And that makes this dark world become transparent that there is a master of the universe. And he's living fine and well in our world. Now, this is what it means in a play of words. When we have to take the world of deceit, the word for deceit in Hebrew is sheker, shin kuf resh. And what do I do? I transform that into kuf resh shin which means a being. And what does this mean? We look in the book of Exodus. We're going to see that God commands Moses to build a tabernacle, which will later evolve into the holy temple, eventually to be permanently in Jerusalem. Yet this mobile house of God in the desert, the walls were made up of krashim, beams. That means that our job is to take the sheker, the deceit of the world, the denial of God's sovereignty, and to transform it into keresh, into the beams of the house of God. And thus, in Kabbalah, we refer to the 613 mitzvot as amudim, as beams that connect and bring down heaven to earth. Thus, we understand what is the holistic purpose and meaning in God's desire for the entire existence of the universe. That there come a place of darkness, i.e. freedom of choice, and we can freely choose 
to transform the, the sheker, the deceit, into the carriage, into the beams of God's home through Torah study and mitzvot observance. But the plot thickens. Why does the essence of desire to dwell specifically within the physical? Why not in the spiritual worlds? Wouldn't that be a nicer, perfect, clean place to go ahead and build the palace of God? Thus, in Judaism, God's kingdom is not up there. God's kingdom is down here. Why? Thus, I want to take you to a Shabbat prayer. What we're going to talk about gets a little mystical here. And please, bear with me. Everything will become crystal clear and practical. In our Shabbat prayers, we say, There is no comparison to you, God our Lord, in this world. Now, the word comparison, ein aroch lecha, in its true meaning, means that there is no finite or infinite comparison at all between the creation and the creator. We're, we're going to get clear on this in a moment when we understand the depths of this prayer. However, I want to read you some of the other verses that this prayer has. There is no one else besides you in the world to come. There is zero but you in the days of Mashiach. And there is none likened to you for the resurrection of the dead. So we have this world, world to come, days of Mashiach, days of resurrection. From this we see that everything that the prayer says about that specific time is specifically to that time. So the concept of there is no comparison to you, is specifically in this world. Why? Why is it that we only in the physical world can we clearly see that there is no comparison to you? And here we're going to go ahead and get a little bit Kabbalistic. When we speak about spirituality, known in Kabbalah as light, we cannot say that there is no comparison between the light and the source of light, between spirituality and spirituality. Yes, there is a difference of the finite and infinite in the quantitative and even in the qualitative measures of light, of the source of light. However, ultimately, they are both, light and source of light, are of the same realm, spirituality and light. Thus, in the spiritual realms, there is no proof that there is absolutely no comparison between God and his spiritual worlds and creations. It is specifically in the physical realm that it can truly be said, not just on a quantitative and qualitative state, but that in an absoluteness, that there is no comparison between creator and creation. One cannot take a can of Diet Coke, look at that physical can, and say there is a comparison between this creation and its creator, God Almighty. It is specifically through the physical world that we are clear that God is not light, not even a source of light. Therefore, the only name that we have for the essence of God is Creator, Bore. That's what we call God, the Bore, the Creator. Every and any other name 
refers to some description and form of some attribute of God. The name creator says nothing about the essence nor the description of the essence other than an action of the essence that God created the world. Essence which has no form, shape, or distinction cannot have an essence name nor a descriptive name, but only an action name. And this action name, as we explained before, does not exist within the oneness world of Atzilut. Over there, everything is descriptive. But only in the world of separation, and more specifically in the physical world of absolute darkness and separation, thus the essence truly has no comfortable abode, so to speak, other than in the physical world. It is specifically because the essence, sorry, it's specifically because the physical world clearly has no comparison at all to its creator, i.e. the essence, unlike the light which has a relationship to the source of light and thus a comparison. However, the physical is created ex nihilo, something from nothing. There is no formative, descriptive relationship between physical creation and the creator, the essence of God. Thus, because essence has no description of form, the most comfortable place in which it can home itself is in the physical world. Now, with this we can appreciate that all the other names of God while they are essence names and descriptive names within the divinity world of Atzilut, they sound higher, those six names. Nevertheless, they speak only of the light related only to the source of light. It's stuck in spirituality. It is specifically the action name of Tzivaot, which is within the physical world of separation that connects us with the essence, not the attributes, but the essence of God. And we can now also appreciate why it is that as we were becoming a nation, a physical nation, and we are on our journey to receive the Torah and mitzvot, not in heaven, but down here on earth, that we are specifically called by this name of God, the legions of the Lord, Tzivot, Hashem. So what we're hearing here is that the name Tzivaot on one hand is the lowest. It's not essence, not descriptive, it's action. But because specifically of that darkness and separation, that's why that specifically can house the essence. Because the essence has no form, has no shape, has no description, has no revelation. And thus it cannot house itself in the world of revelation, i.e. the divinity worlds of spirituality and light. But rather specifically in our world of darkness. Now let's go on and make this extremely clear. We are familiar with the Latin phrase upon the great seal of the United States, a pluribus unum. What this means is, from many, one. 
what we just explored from the Kabbalah and Hasidic perspective is that the opposite. E unim pluribus, from one, many, and a pluribus unum, from many, one, depend upon each other. For it is only in the many that we can truly connect with the essence of one, after which we can then reveal that the ultimate truth of the many, separation, darkness, is that it is the only place where the essence of one is found and revealed. And this is all, as we said, within the lowest lies the highest of the highest, specifically the name Tzivaot, specifically in the physical world, we have not just the infinite light of God, not just the source of the infinite light, but the essence itself. That is the holistic purpose of it all. And that's why creation continued until we got to the ultimate world of separation and darkness, the physical world. There God chose a nation. There God gave his Torah and mitzvot for us to physically do so that we can create an abode, not just for the infinite light, not just for the source of the light, but for the essence of God. In closing. In closing, let us return to our opening modern, opening modern day issue of holistic logotherapy. Let us see how our individual purpose and meaning is part of the holistic meaning of all existence. The nucleus of our soul, the essence of our soul is, I quote to you, truly a piece of the essence of God above. Therefore, by us revealing and making an abode of our own life for the essence of our own soul, we are painting our own personal stroke in God's universal master painting. Many of us see our spirituality as an end in its own to this purpose and meaning. It's all about being spiritual. No. However, what we have just learned here is that spirituality in itself is never the home and revelation of the essence. It is only when our spirituality manifests itself within our physical life, and specifically in the detailed baby steps of each and every physical area of our life, that we bring forth the essence of our souls. And through doing this, bringing forth the essence of our souls, we create an abode for the essence of God, fulfilling God's holistic desire and purpose for all of creation. So remember, it's not about just the spiritual. The spiritual has to lead to the physical. Did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the poor? Have you done acts of kindness and goodness, physical? Do you physically work your head to understand at least one concept of the weekly parasha? Are you a or la'amim? Are you a light through your physical acts of goodness to all the nations of the world? That's where the essence of God, through the essence of our soul, lives. Thank you.